This is Synthetic A Priori, Episode 1. The name of the podcast is meant to be scary. And the idea is if a slightly dry, technical-sounding name doesn't put you off, then you might find some treasure here. So, welcome. So, there are two things I thought of to talk about today. First one has to do with category theory and the relationship between or maybe a potential relationship between categories as defined in category theory and a family of ideas or phenomena that kind of overlap when it comes to jobs to be done, uh, affordances, and the general sort of question about uh, the definition of functionality in a system. Okay, so that's one kind of area. And then the other area uh, has to do with um, just a small observation about social media and the nature of social media uh, compared to other types of media and um, kind of the role of convexity in social media and then maybe unpacking um, some thoughts and things that I've learned about how to think about uh, convexity, cascading effects, um, and connected systems. So let's actually start off with the social media one because that is that came second, so it's a little more fresh in my mind. Uh, I've been thinking lately about uh, ownership of media. Um, I've been on the web long enough to have kind of a, you know some different experiences with the, what it's like to set up a website in the 90s you paid, I mean, at the time you paid somebody for your email, you paid a web host, and you weren't using a kind of um, integrated platform to make your content available online. You were kind of, you had to assemble the parts yourself. So there was a lot of um, modularity in the system. You know, you would, you would get the web host, but that didn't give you a website and then you would create the website but of course a website and content are not the same thing and then you would also create your content and of course if you wanted to somehow automate this process then you also had to add in this dynamic ingredient of does the, is there some way that it's kind of through the website I can actually enter the content and it will remember the content and store it and retrieve it and, and, and deliver it. Uh, you know, it, this is, this was sort of the advent of blogging tools, right? That, that I wasn't just going and editing an HTML file. I was actually updating a database through an interface and that there was a kind of seamlessness or integration through this interface that I was using to add the content and the interface that the public was using to access the content. This was kind of the integrated blogging platform thing. And there's this uh, question that arises of ownership because today, a lot of the times, we're not creating our own website. We're not creating our own um, blogging platform. Or if we're using a blogging platform, somehow we may not f own the data. You know, So if I post some stuff on 
medium, I don't, I haven't looked at it recently, but actually I don't think that I can export my data uh, as data and then republish that somewhere else. It's kind of all munged together with the presentation on the platform. So they're kind of holding my data and it's a bit risky for me to put it in their hands because they could decide at any given moment to shut down or or censor something I write um, or who knows what, right? So, um, so this question arises of ownership and I'm seeing here and there uh, some murmurings you know, of folks who are saying that uh, they're making it a priority to, for example, post content uh, on a channel that they own, like an email list. And if they do that, then uh, first of all, there isn't a question of the content disappearing on them. But second of all, and, and, and for me, a bit more interesting is the notion of, of owning that. Uh, I mean, you, you can't really say owning the audience, but you know what I mean? Like, um, holding the data about the audience and maintaining that data yourself so that that audience goes with you. And um, it's interesting because I occasionally see things on Twitter that make me nervous, that make me think, okay, I actually, I don't post political material and it's not my area. Um, but it, it's a little, it does make you nervous to see people who are posting things and then whatever they write could get pulled or blocked or censored or something. And it just kind of points to the power that, that the owner of a centralized integrated platform has. And I don't have a way to sort of export my follower list and then communicate to them outside of Twitter. And I, I don't even think I can export all of my tweets, you know, uh, to, to republish somewhere else. So just from a risk assessment standpoint, it can make you nervous sometimes. It makes you wonder, okay, maybe I should do an email list or maybe I should think about some kind of a web platform again. And then I started to question, well, what is holding me back from making that change? And okay, part of it is, you know, if we look at it in terms of a job to be done, you know, forces of progress framework, we could say that there's not enough push in the sense that I'm not, I don't have a deadline coming up where something is going to go away and I have to move, you know, or or something hasn't happened that is so catastrophic that it makes me think never again, and I, I have to I have to make a change. It, there's sort of a a kind of accumulation of little red flags that makes me start to look around, but I'm not at all at the point of switching yet. But it makes me wonder. Okay, you know there are there is this accumulation of red flags. So what's the, what are the anxieties that hold me back? And one of the anxieties is that. Um, if I were to try and migrate away to an owned platform, I'm worried that I would lose convexity. And um, what does that mean? Uh, convexity is a word that came into my vocabulary from reading the Seam Taleb's work. Anti-fragile was the one that, that really impacted me and made me interested in, in his work. And um, he talks a lot about this notion of convexity and it turns out to be actually a pretty juicy thing. It's the notion that um, in some situations or some contexts, you can have a known downside, a known cost, and, uh, and an unknown upside. 
Uh, and this comes up in so many different situations, you know. So, for example, you can look at um, what I wrote in Shape Up as, as an example of convexity. Um, when we cap our investment on a given project at the appetite. So let's say we say this, this project is, this tiny project is worth two weeks or at a maximum, this piece of work that we shaped is worth six weeks of a team's time. And we put that circuit breaker in place that says that we are not under any circumstance going to just extend this without making a new deliberate bet. Um, what we're doing there is we're saying at most I'm going to lose six weeks of time if this doesn't work out, let's say. Um, but the upside is, is unknown, you know? I mean, okay, there might be cases where the upside kind of has a certain limit to it. Like, let's say, let's say I'm fixing a bug and the bug happens to be gnarly enough that it's going to involve pulling a few strings and seeing where they lead and then uncovering a bunch of dependencies. And there's some gnarly work there. And we're going to, because this bug is so significant, let's say this is a bit unusual, but let's say we were going to allow six weeks to fix this issue. At the end of the day, all we've done is fix the bug. So from a convexity standpoint, it's not particularly interesting. But let's say that we were um, building a new feature. And this new feature, we don't know how many people are going to use it. We don't know how many people are going to be excited about it. We don't know how many people are going to tell other people about the product because of this. Um, uh, and it could be that um, at Soke, at the worst, we lose the six weeks. But at the most, who knows? What if it what if it totally took off and and produced a massive amount of new interest in the product because of the change, or uh, what if it got, gathered a whole bunch of interest uh, from some media and then a lot of people found out about the product because of it, or who knows, right? Um, I, so there's this kind of um, it's exciting to be in a situation like that because you ask yourself all right, am I willing to plonk down whatever this capped investment is? And then and then it feels a little bit like playing a slot machine. Like I put my quarter in and I pull the handle and I might get a lot more than a quarter out, right? <laughs> and uh, I think this is, um, this is not a new point, of course. A lot of people have observed this about social media. But that's the thing for me that's so exciting about Twitter is because there's this sort of convexity on a number of fronts. There's convexity in the sense that I might form a relationship that I didn't expect. So, for example, I became friends with Bob Mesta, who has been a huge mentor to me um, uh, through meeting on Twitter. Um, and and how, how can I even kind of measure the impact of all the things that I've learned there? Um, or uh, let's take another dimension, like um, I might have uh, an idea that I'm playing with and by tweeting about it, I can articulate it and I can, um, you know, I, I sometimes think of it as sort of like, um, you know, when you have an idea, it's kind of this blurry thing that's floating around and you don't even know really what shape it has, what characteristics it has. It's just something that you can, you can just kind of like, like you just, it's just there. It's like, ah, and then, and then when you want to communicate that idea, then you have to, you have to both kind of dimensionally reduce it and serialize it. 
you know you have to shrink it down to some kind of set of concepts that expresses it and then you also have to put one word after the other so that it can be communicated as a as a as a string of um you know phonology or 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 syntax or whatever right something that can be read and then and then um and then constructed and understood and um so having some kind of a rough idea and then needing to kind of reduce and concretize it and serialize it and then put it out as as, as the, in this form um is a kind of um it's a kind of sharpening exercise you know and so it has merit on its own but i don't think i would do it if there wasn't the prospect that i would learn something by doing it coming from outside feedback and that can be an unexpected comment it can be uh, just the number of likes that something gets, which kind of reflects on the interest and can make me wonder about what other people are thinking about that makes it resonant. It can also be um, uh, it can even be kind of who picks it up, you know uh, it can spark it can spark something where maybe I have, uh, some weak ties with a few people on Twitter whose ideas I find interesting. And then I post something that is a little bit, um, not straight down the middle of the things that they write about. And then, and then it turns out that they respond to it or they retweet it or something like that. This actually is a relationship building moment because it's showing some kind of an overlap in our interests that I, that I maybe didn't know about before. So there's so many different types of payoff and then all of that is happening because of connectivity. It's all happening because of this network. And this kind of comes back. And of course, you know, there's the classic network effects of maybe it catches on and then, and then one person retweets and another retweets. And then before you know it, you get this power law behavior and a, a massive amount of people have been exposed to something that they wouldn't have otherwise seen. All right, this is, of course, really exciting when it happens. And this happens on different timescales, right? It happens on the short time scale of a single tweet blowing up and it happens on the longer time scale of the followership increasing the audience size increasing through the network effects so there's all that you know and and this kind of ties back to the question of well if i wanted to go back to an audience that i felt i somehow owned or felt safer or felt more secure or less likely to get pulled away it seems like the trade-off is actually giving up these network effects. I mean, there's always been network effects in the sense that if you wrote something, whether it was a pamphlet or a leaflet or a book or a magazine article or a web or a web page or a blog or a post or, or, or whatever, I mean, the mere fact that it is at all in the realm of media means you have a kind of network thing happening because the whole point of media is, is that you put something out there and someone else sees it. And um, the mere fact that someone else sees it means that yet someone else can see it and then there's your network. But I think there is something substantial or different or somehow important about the timing and the speed of this process. And um, there's, there's, I feel right now like I would be missing out on a lot of opportunities or I'd be missing out on a lot of... Um, slot machine pulls, you know, pulling that lever um, just because of the sort of slower speed 
of, of those other channels, right? If I write a blog post, uh, first of all, it's going to be a sort of a higher bar of time and effort to pull that lever. And, uh, and I also don't get quite as much as immediate feedback. Um, so, uh, maybe there's a place for that. And I've seen, you know, like some folks like Ben Thompson advocate, uh, a mixed approach where it's like you, you write your blog posts, you own your blog posts on your own platform. Maybe you have an email list, which you also own. Um, but then at the same time you are, uh, sharing the news of a new post, right. Or, or kind of, um, exposing a little excerpt of something from the email thing through something like Twitter so you're kind of, and you're also doing a lot of rough drafts and a lot of little off-the-cuff ideas. So you're kind of pulling the little lever frequently, you know, and then you're pulling the big lever of the blog post from time to time. And then, but then you also have a relationship between the two that you can post the blog post, tweet about it, and then get all of the, all of those network effects out of the social media. So I don't know. Um, it's not something to make a decision about, but it is kind of an interesting thing to see the intersection of all these things. There's one thing that I, that I was kind of just enjoyed reflecting on as I thought about this earlier today was that um, there's a lot of ideas coming together here. You know, when I first started to read Antifragile and, and get into Nassim Taleb's work, I was curious about um, sort of when and where do you get this I guess we could now call it the lever effect, you know, the slot machine effect or this convexity, sort of how and when do you get that and when does it matter? And um, and it's interesting, you know, this was a, sort of a puzzle. And uh, and then I was, I was at NEXI, the New England Complex Systems Institute, um, for, a, for a course. And uh, Nassim spoke over Skype and, and Yanir Baryam, uh, the founder of NEXI, um, uh, he, uh, he was also there and he was explaining, you know, that the, the thing that gives you the, the, the payoff, the big slot machine win or the potential for that is the connectivity. And then it's so interesting to look at all the different situations where you either pursue that type of a win or hope for that type of a win, or maybe mistakenly think that that type of a win can happen. And, and how one can look at the underlying dynamics and say, what kind of connectivity is here that could enable that? You know, so uh, w how is it that um, the distribution of, of something like book sales are fat-tailed? And you can say, well, there is a kind of, I can understand something about the underlying process because if I read a book, I tell other people about it. Or if I read a book and it's not on a Kindle and I'm sitting on a, subway somewhere people can see the book cover in my hands or if i'm sitting at a cafe someone can see it on the table right and and this this that right there uh, is showing the dynamics of the process it's showing the connectivity and it's through that connectivity that you get the cascades and the cascades manifest themselves as these big payoffs so it's a totally interesting subject An instance of all that was this thing about category theory. So 
I've been hearing about category theory for a long time, and it's it's become a popular subject in the functional programming community, of which I am not a part, but like a lot of communities, I have a kind of um, armchair nerd outside interest in. Uh, it started with Closure, I think, um, and Rich Hickey's talks, and there's something really beautiful about the the kind of logical rigor and the tightness and closedness of a system of immutable functions. It's really like there's something really beautiful there. Um, and I was totally sympathetic to his arguments against things like place-based programming, you know, and, and I always kind of cringed a little bit uh, if I was working on some project and I was just kind of updating something and I didn't have a kind of trace back of the events that led to the change or the chain of cause and effect that led to the change, but something just changed. And now the world kind of doesn't make sense or some kind of a consistency is lost because some state was just mutated. And yeah, so there's this, I've been aware of you know, the functional programming community and then this little bit of chatter coming in about, about category theory. And every time I looked at it, man, I couldn't think of any, I couldn't see anything interesting about it. I couldn't find anything to do with it. And even worse, um, I've never been particularly interested in something like a theory of types um, or, um, you know, there's some related work I think that has to do with um, kind of automated theorem proofing or, or, or somehow reasoning about the provability of things. There's a whole area that I haven't really had any interest in. Um, and even within the sort of community and culture of programming that I live in, um, you know, through my, my the little bit of contact I have as a you know, person at Basecamp learning Ruby and being around the Ruby world and being exposed to Ruby and then having sort of osmosed some of the small talk culture that, that preceded the Ruby culture and stuff like that types were somehow not the thing, you know, it wasn't the interesting measure of correctness. The interesting measure of correctness was more like the, the, the integration test. Like, does it do what it's supposed to do, you know, as a transformation of actual content, not as a, not as a staying within coloring within the lines of, of types so category theory wasn't very attractive and then but nonetheless it keeps popping up and it keeps popping up and it always had just enough of a some kind of allure that I couldn't explain and so I found myself like maybe once a year or you know every few months kind of reading something about it again and then starting saying ah and then you know going away and then uh last week um I've been following the live streams of of Stephen Wolfram's physics project and they did a uh, live stream where where he had some folks who were trying to explain category theory to him in the pursuit of some kind of overlap or relationship between what category theory has to say and what um, you know the the new work that he's doing on on um, multi-way systems and hypergraphs and stuff like that. Um, maybe there's some sort of an interesting overlap there. 
And it was so funny because the folks who were explaining category theory on there, they seemed to be really struggling to explain it <laughs> and to somehow make it relevant. And it kind of devolved into this discussion about types again. And it's like, ugh, okay, what, what is this? And um, it raised the question again for me and made me wonder, okay, there's got to be, there's so much interest in this. There's got to be something to it. There's got to be something worth looking at. I did a YouTube search again. And uh, also somehow YouTube is always, you know, following me around and trying to, to, to use its not very intelligent, but just interesting enough sort of correlative mechanisms to say, hey, you clicked on three things about category theory. Here's one you didn't see. And it brought up a, a video that was kind of old Khan Academy style, you know, black background, someone drawing with different colored pens with a stylus with narration over the top and no no, uh, what do you call it? No floating head in the corner, you know, just the, just the blackboard, the colored ink, the moving cursor, the drawing and the narration. And, uh, this video, um, opens by talking about, imagine you're on a desert Island and you need to create some tools. And it talked about kind of the overlap in functionality of tools. Like you could make a hammer but then you could sharpen the end of the hammer, like the handle into a spear. Or it talked about the overlap and functionality between a rock and a hammer. And then like all of a sudden, oh, and there was one other thing too, connected to all this. Um, there was this sense of, actually at one point later in the video, the, the, the guy who's narrating uses this funny word. He says, you could decontentualize something. You know, and usually we hear about decontextualizing things, but he said decontextualizing. And the notion of sort of taking the content out of something and then st it's still having some semantics or some meaning or some functionality or some purpose, that like all of a sudden, both of these things both rang bells really strongly in my mind. And these bells happen to resonate at similar frequencies to ring a, a, a kind of new synthetic bell. And uh, what were all these things? So the first bell was this notion of decontentualizing, which for me um, reminded me of shaping. The whole notion of shaping is I have something in mind that I want my future self to do or I would like to be able to delegate to other people as a project. And if I try to spell out all of the implementation detail, uh, if, well, first of all, I'm going to be wrong because I can't anticipate all of that. I have to actually start pulling on the strings of the interdependencies of the actual work to discover what the actual work is. But at the same time, I, the, the other, the other piece of it is that, um, I, if, even if I could, and sometimes you can, because sometimes you have, you have so much experience in a domain um, and the reason you're delegating it is not because you don't know how to do it. It's because you, you actually are doing other things and, and you're trying to offload the work, right? And um, there are cases where you've even done more or less this exact work. And you, could, um, you, could, you wouldn't be able to remember all of the interdependencies and all of the little things that you have to build to make it come together. Um, but you can, you basically know it. Um, but even in that case... If you, if you micromanage the work, you actually kind of, it's, you, you, you lose doubly 
you first you lose because you take the fun out, you know, uh, uh, you take the fun out of, of the other person kind of working out the details and you take out the, you take out the learning experience of them discovering those relationships and coming to, to, to realize why all those small pieces need to be where they need to be. And of course you also lose just because you waste your time. Uh, it's, it's much more fun and more valuable for the teams and a better use of time to articulate the sort of big macro things that need to happen in the project and without spelling out every little detail, you know, you give them more autonomy, they get to work it out and, and, um, and, uh, and, and you get to sort of specify the things that matter and move on. And, and this process of seeing a lot of work that needs to be done and, and then lifting it to the right level of abstraction. Um, but, but somehow fixing the key points that need to be there as boundaries or the load-bearing structures or the things to fill in, this kind of felt like decontentualizing, uh, you know, to use this, this funny word. Uh, so that rang a bell. And then the other thing that, the other bell that rang was this relationship between somehow a hammer and a rock are two different things, but they do the same things. And this overlap in their doing um, is a kind of mapping. And it's a mapping not of their, their substance, it's a mapping of their function. And uh, this, this made me think of a whole um, line of inquiry that uh, traces back to J.J. Gibson's work on affordances. You know, there's this notion of what a thing affords and what it is are different. So um, uh, this is the notion that um, if I need to, to get up toward the ceiling to change a light bulb, there's actually a whole bunch of different ways I could do it. I could, I could grab a step stool. I could grab a full-on ladder. I could grab a chair. Um, I could, uh, you know, maybe if I was really, really pressed for time, I could, I could or really like somehow in trouble. Like I, could, I have no chair, I have no step stool. And I start looking around, you know what I mean? And that's like, okay, I'll, I'll drag my desk over or I'll, I'll take those, um, uh, the shelf that's holding up, I have the, a big heavy shelf that is holding up a bunch of books and I'll, and I'll move the shelf over or I'll, 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 I'll take all the books down and I'll stack the books up and I'll stand on the books, right? There's this, um, there's this great variety of solutions, but all of these solutions are somehow kind of isomorphic to each other in some way. I'm not quite sure if that's even the word, but there, there there's a functional isomorphism between them, right? And, um, this is uh, kind of captured by, by the notion of an affordance in the sense of like, what does this thing allow me to do? Um, and it's also captured um, I, it's captured in the notion of a, um, of a job to be done in the sense that I have something that I'm trying to do and I have a variety of, I mean, okay, jobs to be done is sort of a buzzword now, right? But um, one of the many things that's fascinating about it, if you really go deeper into the subject, is 
this notion that if you view things in terms of the job that you can use them to do, that's, that's a different way of segmenting the world of objects. So, um, than, than a, a more, maybe a stock segment segmentation, which would be like by what marketers consider to be, uh, competitors or, or things that are manufactured in the same way or things that, that can be found on the same, in the same section in a store, right? Um, those are sort of all like supply side segmentations and then a demand side segmentation is what a job to be done is it's, it's like if I'm, if, so like, let's take like a canonical example. Like if I'm hungry and I, I reach for the Snickers bar, uh, there's a reason that the Snickers is the right choice in that moment. And it has to do with the requirements that are imposed by my context and where I'm trying, where I'm starting from and where I'm trying to go. So if I have a short period of time, I'm losing energy, I have to keep going, I'm in public, um, uh, then, then, you know, whatever it is, like I, 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 I need to be able to like eat it quickly. Um, I probably need it to be something that could be stored or accessed without a lot of care around the temperature. You know what I mean? Like it can't be something that I put in my bag and then it melts. And then I, when I, when it's time to eat it, uh, it doesn't work right. Or I, I can't, I can't go get a plate and a fork and a knife and a, and a napkin to eat it. You know what I mean? There's all these things that make the Snickers bar the right thing, right? And also, of course, internal aspects of its design, like um, the the fact that it's food-like, the fact that you chew it and gulp it, and then it, it, doesn't, it doesn't linger as like, a, it's, not, it's not like something that coats your mouth or, or, or dribbles down your chin or something like that, right? It's just you hop, hop, and then you're, you're satisfied and you move on. There's a variety, when you look at it through that functional lens, there's a variety of other things that fit that and a variety of things that don't. So like an apple is, is, is quite similar, right? The apple's not going to melt. You can grab it with one hand. You can just bite it and chew it and swallow it. And then it gives you that shot of sugar, but it's also food-like. Um, of course, uh, things like a power bar. Uh, um, maybe, uh, you know, um, like an energy drink, uh, though that's a little bit more maintenance in terms of, you know, it has to be kept cold to be satisfying, you know, stuff like that. But anyway, more or less similar. So there's this notion that all of a sudden now I have a variety of things, you know, like a fruit and a candy bar and a beverage that are kind of grouped together because of what they do, even though all of those things would be found on, let's say, very different aisles in the store or different shelves. Um, and they're, they're manufactured with different inputs and different processes. Um, it's just like if I'm trying to change the light bulb and the, the ladder and the step stool and the chair and the desk that I drag over, uh, all those different things are, um, they are, they kind of belong to different categories until this moment comes where all of a sudden they somehow belong in the same category. <laughs> and um, the, coming back to the bell that rang, you know, the initial bell that actually rang that ties all these subjects together was actually some work by Stuart Kaufman. He has this thing that I, I, I in, in my mind as a shorthand, I call it the screwdriver problem. And it's the fact that um, if you have a screwdriver sitting there 
and you ask yourself, what is a screwdriver good for? There's actually no finite pre-statable list of applications of a screwdriver. Of course, we have certain prototypical cases like screwing in a screw. Um, uh, or, you know, maybe you have a few others that come to mind. Like if it's a flathead screwdriver, maybe you think of opening a paint can, a paint can for example, or something like that. But actually, uh, if you find yourself in a bind and you need to prop open a door or you need to uh, break a window or you need to fight off an intruder, <laughs> the screwdriver can suddenly um, appear in new ways with new functionality that wasn't necessarily salient from the beginning. So there's this beautiful image, actually, of a kind of um, latent space that is open-ended, that's not pre-statable, that is totally packed with um, potential functionalities, you know? And this latent space of functionalities gets kind of tapped into through the imposition of context and some kind of a job to be done and through the meeting of this latent space of potential functionality and then the constraining the constraining what do you call it the constraining influence or the 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 we don't have i mean i don't have words for this but you know there's a kind of action on this potential by the job to be done that pulls out uh, new possibilities that you didn't see before, right? This is like a really exciting, kind of really cool thing, I think. Um, and, uh, and then all of a sudden I thought, oh, maybe that could, could category theory be some tooling to talk about this phenomenon, you know, because what it seems to be doing is, is actually it's describing systems only in terms of their their relationships and the way that one thing changes into another. They call them you know, morphisms and functors, and uh, and 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 at first glance, um, it doesn't seem to be very helpful because all these examples say, well, like you know, if I'm if I'm always kind of moving through types and I'm not moving through content, then it's like, okay, an integer maps to an integer or an integer or a, a true turns into a false or something like that. It's like, hmm, you know, I'm not quite sure what to do with that. But if I think of it as a, as a definition of a sort of transformation of different functionalities, you know, that I need to, I need to, uh, transform my height to, there's a certain kind of transformation that happens and it's kind of independent. You know, I need to transform my height somehow uh, to change the light bulb. There's a transformation there that's kind of independent of the means, you know, and, and it's, it's like an interface that's independent, independent of the implementation. But, you know, interfaces are always sort of thought of in terms of space. And, and, and what's interesting about the category theory is that it's, it's more about the transformations or the, the, the changes that can happen, these, these mappings of these functors and morphisms. And so it's, it's more time-like than space-like. It's like um, there's a transformation that can happen uh, from one situation to another. And if a bunch of things all kind of do the same type of transformation, then they belong together in a category. And I don't need, and I can abstract away 
how that happens. And that's, that's actually really interesting. So maybe there's some tooling there. And then the sort of uh, last thing that came to mind on the subject, maybe, maybe we wrap up with this for today, is it, it does kind of, it's one of those things, you know, there's so many things like this, especially as a kind of mm, generalist armchair outside amateur nerd person you 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 have a certain thing that you actually know about like you know i can actually make some software that's something i know about and i know a little bit you know about maybe how to um how to turn an idea into a project and and shape that as a ui and back end and business idea together and then delegate that and and and, and put the right conditions around that and enable that to happen through you know, through all the sort of things that are described in shape up. So I have some expertise in something, you know, but then you have kind of these, all these side interests and then you try to pull in these side interests, you know, like you talk about, I talk about convexity, but I don't actually really know much about options trading even. And these are the examples that, that, that Nassim Taleb is, is, is teaching with. I don't really understand that, but I think I'm seeing something I do understand, right? Or, looking at category theory now and saying, well, I'm not a mathematician and this is not, this is not my area, but I'm seeing something that maybe I can pull in and use, right? And uh, this has worked in the past. So I, I, I continue to sort of do it, even though it has you know, pitfalls and, and whatever, right? Um, but yeah, so there's looking at it kind of from that vantage point, I start to say, okay, but wait a minute, am I, am I, am I BSing myself right now or do I actually understand something? And as I look at all the sort of examples that are given of category theory, there um, are so many that just seem to be about from type to type to type. And the question arises, well, if, 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 if I'm, let's take the example of changing the light bulb. If I'm just changing height to height, it's not very interesting, right? But if I'm, if I'm moving from the floor up to an elevated position that that brings me near enough to the light bulb that's a transformation that matters and and what does it mean to to sort of look at those the 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 difference between saying look it's just a height with with value n uh and value n plus whatever you know uh one height versus another um, and when when does the the difference in height, when does the change in that value become a difference in kind instead of a difference in quantity? You know, when when does it matter that that height is different? And um, and and then this this pulls in um, this pulls in this question of reference frame again, which is something that I've been really enjoying um, following Wolfram's project because, one of the things that you see again and again as they try to sort of pull out different pieces of physics from the from the the from the hypergraph is that you know they 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 keep bumping into different situations where you need a reference frame and the reference frame kind of allows you to make sense out of a million possibilities all of a sudden kind of shrink down to a circumstance that has a sort of local meaning and perhaps there's something about the imposition of a reference frame onto types where it's not so much just about the types, but it's about the fact that in one circumstance, it's just from type to type. But in another circumstance, actually, I'm going to differentiate 
different types within those types because the values, the difference in the values matter. There's a kind of phase transition where, you know, 98 degrees and 103 degrees look different from the standpoint of outside temperature in, in, in the desert. And they, but they don't make a big difference, you know, they maybe feel one is maybe a little bit more uncomfortable than the other, but from the standpoint of body temperature, we call one of them normal and the other one we call fever, right? So, so here we have in one reference frame, the types are the same. It's just temperature of the outdoors, right? It's just outdoor temperature. But from the other standpoint, we, we actually categorize them into meaningfully different types. Either you have a fever or you don't. So, so there's something there about um, taking a job to be done, figuring out what are the metrics of progress that sort of tell you I have succeeded or I'm getting where I'm trying to go, expressing those as a transformation of types, um, and then being able to articulate that as a transition of, or, uh, you know, tra uh, uh, let's say, um, these different mappings from type to type as a category. And then perhaps if we do that at the right level of abstraction, we actually have something like what category theory describes and we get the abstraction that category theory promises to be interesting as something that is indeed interesting, which is the fact that we could now say, here's a great variety of different objects or, or um, things that we could hire to do the job that is not even pre-statable, right? Uh, that we could pull in that all happen to fulfill this functional criteria. Okay, so let's um, let's say that that's that's um, that's enough about that for today, and let's see what comes if we do this again. You can find me on Twitter at rjs, and my website is feltpresence.com, and. We'll be back with another episode next week.